1 Kings chapter 18 verse 17 you will recall that Elijah has met Obadiah who works in Ahab's household and has said I am going to present myself to Ahab I want you to go and tell him and Ahab meets Elijah and that's where we pick up the story verse 17 then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him is that you O troubler of Israel and he answered I have not troubled Israel but you and your father's house have in that you have forsaken the commandments of the, of the Lord and have followed the Baals now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. The Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourself and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us! But there was no voice. No one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out of them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice but there was no voice no one answered and no one paid attention then Elijah said to all the people come near to me so all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down and Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice, and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. 
So they did it a third time. And so the water ran all around the altar. He also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we pray once again that as we come, having heard your word read to us, we come to hear it preached and proclaimed to us. Lord, lift the scales from our eyes that we may see the glory and the greatness of our God. We may admire and wonder and be filled with zeal for the honour and glory of the Lord of hosts. Hear us, help us, we pray this night for Christ's sake. Amen. We have just read one of the most decisive and one of the most dramatic events recorded anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. Not only has Elijah spoken the word of God and been shown to be a true prophet of the Lord, but more importantly than that, as a result of the word of the Lord that Elijah has spoken, Baal is publicly ridiculed, her priests are slaughtered, and the Lord God of Israel is vindicated. This chapter is about the confrontation of Baal and the vindication of the Lord. Now up to this point, only a handful of people have seen the power of God at work. Elijah is one of those. At the brook Cherith, he was fed by the ravens in a miraculous manner. Then when he was sent to Zarephath, the flour and the oil in the widow's house was multiplied each day so that food was supplied. And then her son was raised from the dead. But apart from Elijah, the widow and her son, no one else had yet seen the power of God at work. All of that was to change dramatically on Mount Carmel. Before her king, before the false prophets and a great number of representatives of the nation of Israel. And let me remind you, this is a time of great wickedness. The most wicked king that had ever sat upon the throne of Israel to this point was in charge, Ahab. 
False worship was established. Israel had forsaken the covenant of the Lord. God's altars had been torn down. And the temple and an altar to Baal had been erected. And the prophets of the Lord were being slaughtered by Ahab's wife Jezebel. I want to look with you at the ways in which God works in order to vindicate his name. To show how he is indeed the Lord God. He works through his bold and courageous servant, Elijah. We considered that last week. Elijah is the means and God gives him great boldness. And Ahab is powerless before this man. But I want to show you something of the glory and the greatness of God that is displayed. And I'm going to show you in six ways. Some are longer, some are shorter. But six ways. First of all, the first way in which we see the Lord vindicated and we see his glory and greatness is this. That the Lord is not intimidated by numbers. When you see that Elijah is the only one representing the one true living God, he acknowledges that in verse 22. I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But then notice Baal's prophets are 450 men. And that is only a small part of those who stand opposed to Elijah and the God whom he represents. We are told in Uh, Verse 19, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. Now it does not mean every single human being who belonged to the tribes of Israel. It means a large representation from the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. We are not told how many, but it was a lot of people. Then there were the prophets of Baal, 450. Then there were the prophets of Asherah, 400, who were summoned from Jezebel's table, although it is not clear whether they actually came to Mount Carmel or not. And then, of course, there is the real troubler of Israel himself, Ahab, the king. He is responsible for provoking the Lord to anger more than anyone else before him. And Elijah is alone. At least when Jeremiah spoke his words, He had a Baruch, but there is no Elisha at this point. And although he is met with Obadiah, Obadiah is not standing with him on Mount Carmel. Elijah is alone against all these false prophets, against this wicked king, and against all the nation of Israel who seem to be content to follow Baal. You begin to feel for Elijah? Well, don't. Because you do not need to. He does not need it. Why? Because all heaven stands behind Elijah. The Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty is with this man. Ahab and his band of false prophets and worshippers, they have been and will be rendered useless and entirely helpless But Elijah comes as a man full of God's word, full of holy boldness, full of faith. The proverb says, Proverbs 28, that the righteous 
is as bold as a lion. And this is a lion, this is God's lion standing here on Mount Carmel. And God is the king in heaven and Elijah is his servant on earth. And God is with his servant. We have no need to fear for Elijah. And we learn from that. For the Lord God Almighty is never intimidated. He's never outnumbered. He never judged the righteousness and the rightness of a cause by how many people support it. Especially in a day in which we live, a day of wickedness and widespread apostasy. What God has said in his word and who God is in his character, that is what matters. And if something is right and something is a righteous cause and something is wrong and only one man stands for what is right and what is good, the Lord will stand with that man. He is not intimidated. He is never outnumbered. His power and his authority is never threatened. Do we imagine for one moment that the Lord can be removed from his throne in heaven? Do we imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ can be removed from his holy hill of Zion, that place of enthronement where the Lord God, his Father, has established him? When the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not intimidated. And these are not the nations. This is the nation of Israel. And these false prophets. And this wicked king. So first of all we see the Lord is not intimidated by numbers. But then secondly, the Lord is not restricted to any one place. We might be tempted to say, well look, Jerusalem and the temple, is, is that not his dwelling place? But is he restricted to Jerusalem? This is Mount Carmel. 1,800 feet high. A good distance from Jerusalem. It is a peninsula that sticks out into the Mediterranean, near modern day Haifa. Well, is he capable of showing his power here on Mount Carmel? Or is his power only to be shown in Jerusalem? Here God will display that he is the Lord and none other. He did so in Egypt. He displayed his power too in Jerusalem. But he will also display it on Mount Carmel before all Israel and before these false prophets. Now you may say, why Carmel? There are some ancient records that call Mount Carmel the mountain of Baal. We find in verse 30 that there was there a broken down altar of the Lord. And it may well be that Carmel had been taken over by Baal worshippers. If that is the case, and if this is the mountain of Baal, or a mountain of Baal, then here is the Lord God, not simply not restricted to any one place, but here he is vindicating himself on Baal's territory again. And if that is the case, it is an even more forceful display of his greatness, his glory, and his lordship. 
you know, in the sporting world, to have home advantage is regarded as a great advantage with all your supporters cheering on the home team. Well, maybe you can see Mount Carmel like that. Elijah comes alone. This is not home territory. It makes no difference to God. He will ridicule and bring to shame Baal on his own territory. Home advantage is of no advantage whatsoever. Our God is not limited by geography. He's not a God of the hills. He's not a God of the valleys. He's not a God who is limited to Zion and to Jerusalem. He is the Lord God of heaven and earth. And he does not dwell in temples made with hands. So he is not intimidated by numbers. He is not restricted to any one place. And we begin to see something of his glory and greatness and to realise that this is going to be no contest. But it is a contest which must take place. But Elijah knows who this God is. He knows his power. He knows that he is going to vindicate his name in, on Mount Carmel on this particular day. But then thirdly we find that God vindicates his lordship by asserting himself as the long-standing Lord of his people. Ahab and Israel have a short memory. They have neglected God. They have forgotten God. And they have forgotten their history. They have forgotten the redemption under Moses, out of Egypt. And the calling of Israel to be his special people and his peculiar nation. They have been redeemed out of Egypt to be a people holy unto the Lord. But they have blotted out and forgotten their history. People often rewrite the history of their nation when there are things they want to blot out. And what does Elijah do? We are told, if we turn a few more verses on to verse 31, that Elijah took twelve stones. Israel was comprised of the ten tribes who had rebelled against Rehoboam. They were not the true, the king now was not of the true line of David. But Elijah takes no notice of that. He takes twelve stones to represent the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. These ten tribes are known by the name Israel and what Elijah does is to take them and to remind them of their roots and their origin. And it was God who gave them the name Israel. God gave Jacob the name Israel. And there were twelve tribes. There were twelve sons of Jacob. Ahab is king of ten. He is an illegitimate king. He's not a true descendant of Abraham and of David. They had no right to forsake the Lord. Ahab has cast aside the word of the Lord. You remember Jeroboam, the first king of these ten tribes, how he put the word of God behind his back and introduced the age of bull worship. Ahab has done a similar thing, but worse, because the sin of Jeroboam he regarded as a very trivial thing, just shrugged his shoulders of no consequence. And he then introduces the age of Baal, marries Jezebel, 
and introduces this abominable worship into Samaria and into the nation of Israel. But it is God who gave them that name, Genesis chapter 32. And Elijah then is making a clear and decisive statement. He is saying to this nation, he is calling them back to their roots, back to the God who called them to be his people. Jeroboam and now Ahab have pronounced a divorce. But the Lord says, I am your husband. You have been unfaithful to me. And Elijah does it again. In verse 36, to whom does he pray? In the hearing of all these people, and in the hearing of Ahab, and in the hearing of the Baal prophets, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. That's just not a convenient title. It's an accurate title. But it comes as a stinging rebuke to the nation and to their king and to the false prophets. He is calling them back to their roots. He is calling them back to their covenant Lord. This latter day Moses bearing his zeal and his jealousy for the Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob burns with indignation against Baal and against Ahab and all that he has introduced into this nation. They have apostatized. They have turned their back. They have denied the Lord their God. And Elijah stands alone and reminds them and reminds them that God has not altered. He is the God who entered into covenant with them. He is the God who first met with Abraham, and then with Isaac, and with Jacob, and called out this nation to be a holy nation unto him. And he is issuing then effectively a standing rebuke, because in the name of God, he is asserting that the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is the rightful Lord. He is always the Lord, always has been the Lord and continues to be the Lord despite what they are doing. And he's calling them and he's pleading with God that God would turn them back, turn their hearts back to you again, verse 37. In this generation in which we live, let us not be ashamed to own the Lord our God. Not only is the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but the Lord who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rightful ruler. He is the sovereign Lord. His word stands. His command will not fail to come to pass. Though men and women are deaf and they are blind though they may mock and scorn and ridicule. Nothing alters the authority and the power that belongs unto our God and to his Son, Jesus Christ. Heaven is not ruffled and disturbed by all the commotion that is going here, on here, on the face of the earth, among the nations, by the unbelief and by the ungodliness that we see on every side. 
Elijah had a confidence in God and he set out to rebuild what was broken to call the people back to the Lord their God who does not change his character does not alter his covenant does not alter his plan and purpose in Christ Elijah stands for that and we must stand for that also but that is the third way in which the Lord vindicates himself asserting himself as the long standing Lord of his people and then fourthly we find the Lord is vindicated by his demonstrating to all that he alone is Lord he is the God who answers by fire and he alone you look and you listen to the religious hullabaloo of Baal worship on Mount Carmel the pagan caterwauling goes on for hours all day they prepare their bull and the sacrifice in the morning and until midday this goes on and then after midday it is intensified it is noisy it is bloody after lunch, after midday because they begin to cut themselves with knives and with lances it's exhausting and yet the whole thing is a complete and utter waste of time imagine the confusion and the clamour 450 men leaping around this altar, shouting to Baal, lashing themselves, cutting themselves in an attempt to get him to answer by fire. And we find in verse 27 that Elijah eggs them on. He mocks them with a holy sarcasm. Elijah knew paganism well. He knew that the gods and goddesses of paganism were distracted and had to busy themselves in the same way as human beings have to. There are these grotesque things that are produced, architecture that is produced and pictures in stone that are carved showing you the activities of these gods and these goddesses. And what does Elijah do? He mocks him and says, cry aloud! Shout a bit louder, you're not loud enough. He can't hear you. He is a God, isn't he? Well, he says, perhaps he's meditating. Perhaps he's gone off to a quiet corner somewhere. So shout, wake him up. Perhaps he's busy. And that's a polite way of saying, perhaps he's gone to relieve himself. That's the kind of sarcasm he's using. He's on a journey, perhaps he's sleeping. He's got to be awakened. Mockery is heaped upon Baal and the prophets of Baal. And they listened to him. They cried aloud and went on until midday was passed. Right until the time of the evening sacrifice. But you'll notice on two occasions in this passage we are told nothing happened. In verse 26 there was no voice. No one answered. And then verse 29 there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal is supposed to be the god of the rain. The god of lightning. One thunderbolt could set fire to this altar. But there is no bolt from heaven or from Baal's heaven to burn the bull on the altar that they directed. 
and veiled, the longer the day goes on, the more he is disgraced and ridiculed by the prophet. I would love to have seen Ahab's face as the day wore on. A mixture perhaps of fear and awe. What is the Lord God doing? It's not enough for him simply to send rain after three and a half years. Why? Because the people will probably assume that Baal has been on a longer journey than usual or has been meditating, or having a sleep longer than usual, and that uh, now he's returned from his long journey, and therefore he's come back, and here comes the rain. First of all, he must be shown to be foolish, he must be ridiculed, he must be humiliated, and the Lord must be vindicated, and therefore, before it is going to rain, there is this public demonstration of the power of God. He is the one who answers by fire. And Elijah prepares now the way at the hour of the evening sacrifice. And there must have been dramatic suspense as Elijah takes the sacrifice, takes the bull, slays it. Having taken those twelve stones, repairing the altar of the Lord, then digging a large trench around the altar, placing the wood on the, on the altar and then the bull on the altar and then the whole altar is doused once, twice, three times with four pots of water. Because the cynics say, where do you get water in a time of drought? Well, you could even make it worse and say, well, Carmel is made up of limestone. Limestone is porous. There's no surface water on limestone hills. But there are underground springs and streams. And the Mediterranean Sea is not that far away. If you really want a lot of water. <laughs> that's not a problem, but that's just what the cynics would say. When Elijah comes, having prepared that altar, and having poured all that water over it, there's no frantic leaping, screaming, shouting, bloodletting. In verses 36 and verses 37 we have a brief, pointed, earnest appeal to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. He had waited all day. The tension is high. I would say that Elijah's adrenaline is also running very high at this point. Despite his confidence in God, that does not mean to say he was not tense and excited. This is a dramatic moment. He cries out, verse 36, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you turn their hearts back to you again. And then there is this bolt presumably from heaven. This fire of the Lord falls and consumes the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now I don't need to demonstrate to you but if I took the glass of water that's in the here, could I set fire to that? You say it's stupid. 
because you can't set fire to that. But this is the power of God. In order to show, in order to demonstrate beyond any decree that the Lord is God and He answers by fire. The fire of God comes down and accepts that sacrifice. Water and all. The whole thing is consumed. And the immediate response of the people is, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Here is a public demonstration of the folly of Baal and the vindication of the Lord. He has answered by fire. He is the true God. He doesn't fail His servant. Elijah has acted faithfully. He's done all this at the Lord's command. Proving that he is a true servant of the Lord. But also proving that God is the true and living God. You may remember what the widow of Zarephath said. When her son was raised from the dead. Now by this I know you are a man of God. But the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. And Elijah is praying for that with regard to him as God's servant. But above all he is praying for God's name. And God's name has been Vindicated. Ahab and the prophets of Baal have no answer. Their wicked ways have been dealt a death blow. And their wicked worship has been judged and rejected. Shown to be false. But in the midst of that judgment, as part of the divine vindication, the Lord shows himself still gracious. This is not a fire of judgment that consumes the enemies of the Lord. This is the fire of the Lord from heaven that consumes the altar on the sacrifice. That altar that has been built in the name of the Lord. It's like the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 9 when Moses and the Levites and Aaron and the Levites the beginning of the tabernacle worship. You remember the glory of the Lord appeared and fire came down and consumed the sacrifice. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces. They saw the glory of God there coming down and consuming the sacrifice. A similar thing happened in the days of David, in the days of Solomon. People praise God. He is good. His mercy endures forever. And here on Mount Carmel, Elijah's sacrifice is accepted by the Lord. And that shows us that even in the midst of great wickedness, that sacrifice was accepted by God and it proclaimed atonement for sin. Yes, even the sin of Ahab and that wicked nation. Elijah was calling the people back to the Lord. How could he call them back to the Lord unless there was atonement for their sin? They had acted very wickedly. But there is a way of pardon. There is a way of grace. Ahab will have none of it. But it does not alter the fact that the Lord is gracious. And now we have the best provision of all, the sure mercies of David. A crucified raised from the dead Lord Jesus Christ who will never again see corruption and through him the forgiveness of sins is preached why? because of that atoning sacrifice 
on Golgotha's hill, on that cross at Calvary. God is gracious. God is declaring his grace even to sinful, wicked creatures. Those who have served the creature rather than the creator. Those who have given themselves over to futile thoughts and foolish hearts darkened. That's how it's described in Romans 1, but that's Baal worship. Futility, darkness, ignorance. This is the kingdom of darkness. This is the kingdom of Satan. And in the midst of all this, as it raises his ugly head, there the grace of God is displayed on Mount Carmel as that sacrifice is accepted. But then as we come to the last thing, the way in which the Lord is vindicated, this provides a problem for a lot of people, but it need not do so. How can we say that God is gracious? How can you say that God is vindicated when carnal ends in carnage? Now, I don't believe that that is the way to describe it, but that's how people use their language. Elijah gives a command in verse 40, Seize the prophets of Baal, do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. 450 people. People say, oh, there's another bloodbath. That ruins the whole story. Some say, well, it's not God's command. It was Elijah said, seize the prophets. He didn't receive a command from the Lord, they say. He's lost it. It's the end of a long day. It's been a very demanding day for Elijah. And when victory comes, he loses control and wreaks vengeance on the false prophets of Baal. Is that the right way to handle the scriptures? Is that an accurate interpretation? No. The sixth way in which the Lord vindicates his Lordship is to show his own holiness and the purity of worship. And if that means to remove the false prophets and priests by death, he will do so. You see, Elijah has not lost control. He is like a second Moses. This is not a personal vindictiveness. This is not Elijah taking revenge at the end of a long, weary day. He is implementing the divine command that has already been given in Deuteronomy and chapter 13. Let me read for you the first few verses of that chapter, because they are very important. If there arises among you, says Moses, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death 
Because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. It is an extreme measure. But it is the only way to remove the evil and it has divine sanction God is holy you cannot play fast and loose with God his worship is holy it must be preserved and if there is wickedness if there is evil if there is idolatry it must be purged and if necessary you put to death in this way those who are the instigators of this false worship. It is a severe divine judgment but it is the way in which the Lord vindicates himself. This age in which we live has turned soft. It's rejected divine authority. It's rejected authority almost of any kind. It's rejected right and wrong. It's rejected the idea that we should punish the evildoer. The statute makers in their own false wisdom have rejected capital punishment. It's no longer on our statute books and it's no longer on the European statute books and those nations that practice it are ridiculed. But we live in an age where many people also rail against God. They do not understand his holiness. They do not understand his authority. They do not understand the purity of his name and his glory and the fact that he will defend his name and the worship of his name. It's not for nothing that God says to Israel when they were released out of the house of Egypt The bondage they were in Egypt. Part of that bondage was the idolatry of Egypt. Egypt was one of the most idolatrous nations. Almost anything and everything was a god. But the Lord God says to his redeemed nation, you shall have no other gods before me. You will not make for yourself any carved image. You will not bow down and serve these gods. This is the breaking then of the covenant. This is the forsaking of God and the covenant. And erecting these false gods which are no gods. And God will have none of it. He will exterminate it. And if that means he must exterminate and remove from the earth those who prosecute this. Then that is what will happen. And that is what did happen. Under Elijah. The apostasy of the nation of Israel, led by, Eli- led by Ahab, promoted by Jezebel, is no trivial thing. Ahab said, Jeroboam's bulls, nothing. Don't worry about it. He had no thought for the holiness of God. And Ahab is shaken out of his complacency by such degrading evil practices. His gods are ridiculed. His gods are judged. His prophets removed. The evil 
is put away. And that is not the end of the story. Jezebel is still there. Ahab is still there. And Ahab still perpetuates evil. But we will come to that in due course. But you can see, can't you, from this chapter, what God is doing. You can see something of the holiness of his character. You see something of his power. You see something of his glory. Something of his greatness. This is your God. This is our God. He is great. He is glorious. He is the sovereign Lord. He is never outnumbered. He is never overawed. He's never limited to one place. The passing of time and of history does not alter him or his covenant and his dealings with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It does not alter his word. He is the God of Abraham even today, working out his purposes in Jesus Christ, who is of the seed of David and the seed of Abraham. All his redeeming purposes are being worked out, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he, and he alone is God. He has the power that answers by fire and brings the gods of the nations to nothing. And his grace is seen and his justice is displayed. Our God has not changed and all of this power and glory and greatness is being displayed at a time of great wickedness. There has never been a day as wicked as the day of Ahab in the kingdom of Israel. And God displays his power and his grace and his justice. God has not changed. We live in wicked days. We live in days when the name of God is ridiculed. And we should be encouraged. We should not despair. We should not give up. We should not stop praying. We should not measure the greatness of our God by the smallness of numbers. Numbers are irrelevant to God. Elijah was one man. And I said, don't pity him. Because God was on his side. Don't pity our state. God is for us. Who can be against us? Let us be encouraged. But not only let us be encouraged. Let us not hold back. Is not this God whom we have seen acting in such power this evening? Is this not the God who is worthy of all and everything that we can give unto him? Is he not worthy of our worship? Is he not worthy of all our heart's desires, of our love and of our zeal? Jesus Christ has now come, having humbled himself, having come as a man. He's now been exalted, he's now been raised from the dead, having provided atonement for our sins. And we have all the blessings of salvation now in Jesus Christ. We are adopted into his family. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We have the gift of the Spirit. We are sealed with the Spirit unto the day of our redemption. We have an assurance that we are the children of God. We have all the blessings. We have all the promises. Everything in Jesus Christ has been given to us as we've been hearing from Colossians and chapter 1. All the fullness dwells in Jesus Christ. And is it not the same apostle who saw the glory of Christ 
here upon earth who wrote then in 1 Peter and chapter 2 to those who were dispersed abroad among the Mediterranean world he says now look you are living stones 1 Peter 2 verse 5 you're being built up into a spiritual house you're a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and then again in verse 9 you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim him, the praises of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, if that is true of you, then let us unashamedly proclaim the praises of him who has called us out of darkness, the darkness of idol worship. We may not bow down to Baal, but we bow down and we make our own idols. The kingdom of darkness is the kingdom of Satan, it's the kingdom of idolatry. It's the kingdom of unbelief. It's the kingdom that will not have the Lord God and his Christ. But God has shown mercy to us. God has shown his kindness. He's called us out of that darkness into light. What then do we owe to him? Let us give him all the love of our hearts and the zeal for his honour and for his glory, no matter what other people say or think. They can intimidate us. They can scoff and they can scorn. It should not shake us. It should should not move us away from the praise and the worship and the service of our God. He will vindicate his name in this age and in the age that is yet to come and on that final great day when Jesus Christ will come with all his angels in glory. That will be the great day, greater than Carmel, far greater than the day of Carmel, when Christ will come. We long for that day. Until that day, may we be found faithful, holding back nothing, but serving God with all our heart, with all our strength. Amen. O Lord, our God, we praise you as the eternal God whose name will never be removed, whose name is great and glorious forever and forever. We thank you for the name for our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We thank that his name is precious. His name shall be extolled forever and forever. The gods of this world have perished and are nothing and shall be nothing before you. And Lord, we rejoice then in you, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you and pray that you would fill our hearts with love for you and increasing measures of zeal and joy and peace in believing upon your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to serve you boldly in this wicked age in which we live when so few call upon your name. Grant us faithfulness, then we pray, to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.